Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. I want to start with a uh, with a mea culpa. Uh, okay. Not to the audience. Finally. Because they don't really care. To my to my readers, if they happen to be out there. So, had a little bit of an embarrassing uh, incident last week with one of my stories. So, uh, uh, listeners may remember that a few months ago, we interviewed the Second Circuit Chief Judge Robert Katzman. Yeah, uh, great interview. Burton Awards. It was a good interview. Uh, hope to have him on again if we can. Um, I mentioned at the end of that interview that his twin brother... Gary Katzman mm-hmm. is a judge on the Court of International Trade, yeah. which is the court I cover. Um, now, very foolishly, uh, I got uh, I wrote up a story about an opinion came out of the CIT on Friday, and uh, Gary Katzman had a concurring opinion, and I quoted from it in the story. Wouldn't you know, I called him Robert Katzman. Well, we had Aww. just <laughs> talked about friend of the show, Robert Katzman. Yes, on the, uh, on the podcast. About right. the, the, the Trump subpoena ruling. That's he, correct. He, so it was in he your penned head. that ruling. He was at the top of my mind, and now, listen- we all make mistakes. It's fine. I was alerted to the mistake by Gary Katzman himself. He wow. emailed me and said, uh, you've mistaken me for my brother Robert. He was on your podcast. Aww. So he it was, it was very nice. Do I, you think that we will get invited to the Katzman family Thanksgiving this I mean, year? We, are, we are trending in that direction, so we'll check back in. Friends of the show. You yes. know what? It's a really high class problem when two brothers are so successful that they could be mixed up in this way. He also, this was like 12 minutes after the story published, so he was very eager to read it. Uh, and well, he's that's just great like, news. hey, I'm glad uh, he's reading our stuff. Simple mistake. Uh, I'm Gary. He's Robert. The brothers Katzman. <laughs> Common mix up. Uh, well, we have a good, we have a pretty good show. We uh, do. Alex and I chatted with Matt Fair, our Philadelphia reporter, over a very funny, sort of interesting kerfuffle over the name of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Yeah, uh, people are very upset. Very about upset. Potential name change. Potentially too upset. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It was good talk with Matt. It was an interesting story. Good chat. So stick around for that. Uh, but before then, uh, Alex is going to kick us off with a. Alex Lawson is going to talk about the movies, which is yeah. just super weird. It's if I can quote, if I can quote Daddy Warbucks from Annie, let's all go to the movies. Uh, that's what we're talking I about. I feel like you did maybe a little Pacino there just now. Have you? Li- that's a, I mean, have you seen the old Annie movie? That I was. I feel like I must have. That was that was Al- that was Albert Finney. Uh, anyway, why are we still talking about yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, as soon as we say <laughs> Alex and movies, this is where the conversation was right. going to trend. Well, there was there was very important movie news. Uh, we got movie news, so uh, it's actually antitrust news wearing. The cloak of movie news, so, okay. so stick with me. Um, this week, the uh, Justice Department announced that it would uh, basically do away with this set of antitrust rules that basically dictated how movies are distributed throughout the country. These rules date back to uh, the late 40s, like the golden age of Hollywood, and the government now basically says that, you know, a lot of these rapid changes in the entertainment industry basically render these rules obsolete, and so they're going to move to get rid of them. It's a very interesting situation, both from, I think it's going to be fun to talk about the the movie angle of it, but um, these antitrust consent agreements are a very interesting beast. Uh, Definitely. They, they exist in music licensing and all these yeah. other places where the DOJ is looking at them and saying, oh my God, we've had this like ongoing Definitely. sort of quasi-lawsuit against the movie industry for, <laughs> yes. for 80 years, and maybe we should look at how these work. Yeah, that's what I think is so cool to talk about here, because you get a little history lesson along with the current change. Well, strap in, because here comes the history lesson. We'll uh, we'll keep it brief and then get to today's news. But uh, so basically in the early days of Hollywood, the studios were immensely powerful and they would control not only the actual production of the movies, obviously, which that's their 
that's their main job. Um, but also the way they were distributed. Many of the studios, most of the big studios owned their own theaters. And in cases where they did not own the theaters, they would they were able to basically just dictate the terms of release to these uh, independent owners. So they had a tremendous amount of power. Um, and they had so much power, in fact, that in 1948, the Supreme Court uh, stepped in and basically said this is an illegal cartel. Uh, when, with that ruling on the books, the DOJ then moved to settle a bunch of lawsuits, uh, with these studios over this, what is now anti-competitive activity that they were doing. Um, and to settle those lawsuits, they, uh, ended up with this set of rules that is known as the Paramount Consent Decrees, which to me sounds like some really cool Cold War stuff, it uh, does. but it's just kind of nerdy antitrust stuff yeah, uh, about sure. movies. It's called Paramount because the, the Supreme Court case was, uh, Paramount, but, or USB Paramount. But explain how these things work. That, yeah. You know, that, cause people hear consent decrees and their eyes gloss over. Definitely. But, but it's like, a, it's an interesting thing. Well, you say that. I think consent decrees <laughs> sound badass, but in any case, uh, so there's lots of moving parts here, but the basics is that, like, as I had just laid out, the studios were basically banned from owning their own theaters um, and from setting minimum ticket prices. That's pretty garden variety and I trust stuff. Um, but the decree, the the decrees also banned what is known as block booking, which is where the studios would basically force theaters to show all of their movies on offer, both movies that were likely to be hits and generate money and movies that like they were just trying to dump on them and probably wouldn't mm. make money or they get access to none at all. So in modern parlance, it's like, okay, you can show Avengers Endgame and you can take your rake off of that because a million people are going to come see that. But you also got to give equal time to, uh, you know, a, uh, a dog's life. With, right. You know, with the guy. Basically exerting their, their, their market power right. to force people to do something they wouldn't otherwise That's exactly right. Do. So these rules... Uh, the Paramount Consent Decrees get rid of those practices. They ban them. And in that time, that those were handed down in 1949. In that time, you really saw the theater industry flourish into into what we now know of, like, you know, this this boom of megaplexes and right. options for, for seeing movies. But now we live in such a different time, and that's really the crux of what's going on yes. with this now, that the movie industry has just changed a ton. I mean, less people are actually even going to the movies. Yes. Everybody's staying at home with Netflix. So what's what's going on with how they're viewing this consent decree? Well, to your point earlier about how there's a history lesson baked in here, I mean, the the sort of longer, you know, history view is, like I said, the, the theater industry boomed. And, of course, in the last, like, five years or so, or probably, maybe a little bit longer, now they're in, like, a different kind of crisis. Right. But in any case, uh, the DOJ said it would review these decrees uh, last year. Um, and that review process basically chugged along somewhat quietly until this week. Um, the DOJ, the, the, the top antitrust official at DOJ is a, a man named Macon Del Rahim. And he told basically an ABA conference that the department would soon ask the court, uh, it's the Southern District of New York, to basically just do away with the rules. Um, just as an aside, as a, a little a little journalist aside, I appreciate a government official making news at a legal conference. <laughs> I do whenever, too. Whenever I go, it's like international trade. Very, very complicated. <laughs> Much to think about. Four people sitting on a round table talking about like stories that you wrote. And that, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, let's go to the cocktail hour. Uh, so anyway, uh, this guy, he makes news um, and he basically says, we're going to ask the court to do away with this. And in essence, he basically said that these consent, as we've been hinting at here, these rules basically stop a threat that no longer exists. You know, this boom of multiplex has offered customers you know, more choices and more screens than, the, than you know, theater owners of the 30s and 40s could ever have imagined, right? And more recently, as I said to you, Amber, there is a, there is a, there are innovations that are basically pushing theaters out of the equation entirely. This was sure. a quote from his uh, ABA speech. 
Once innovation has occurred, it would be a mistake for antitrust enforcers to limit the potential for consumer-enhancing innovation. We cannot pretend that the business of film distribution and exhibition remains the same as it was 80 years ago. So he's pretty sort of simply summed up that these things have outgrown their usefulness, and they're going to ask the court to uh, to do away with it. I them. mean, that all makes sense to me, what we've talked about. But what I really want to know, as a person who loves movies and going to movies, what does this mean? What's this going to mean for me? Well, it's very interesting because, as I said, um, when they did this review, that's like any government process. There's a public comment period, and you know people are allowed to you know accept or reject or whatever. During the time that this was going on, you didn't hear a lot of commentary from the big studios or the big uh, multiplex chains. There's basically three companies that own multiplexes now, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. Right. And they didn't really comment at all. They gave, like, perfunctory comments. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's just because, like, you know, to the extent of, like, there's so many screens now, so I don't really care that I also have to show the bad movies with the good movies. There's, like, 30 screens here. We can right. make that work. But where it does, where it is genera generating a lot of sort of angst is among the very dwindling ranks of smaller independent movie theaters. Oh, um, sure. Like your art house style theater. Yeah. Well, and as I'm sure, if, if you've been paying attention to the movie industry, you've noticed this like stratification going on where the things that are really drawing the people out of their homes are these big event movies, mm -hmm. these, these tentpole franchise movies that are iterations of other intellectual property and it just kind of gets redone and all this stuff. Redone goes, and redone Yeah, and redone. I know, yeah. Um, so, you know... The, the thing that is worrying these sort of independent theater operators is that this, like, removing these constraints will basically speed up what's already happening yeah. in the market. Um, so here's an example. Remember how before I said about block booking, where you are yeah. forcing people to sort of take, you know, all or nothing to, to show your things. Now, if you have a fewer amount of screens and you're trying to cultivate your, you know, if you're trying to, like, cultivate for smaller films or foreign films, now, in theory, the the studios have the ability to just say you're getting all of this stuff that we want to give you or you're getting none of it. Yeah. Now, we don't know if they'll actually do that yet. It's also important to note that this block booking thing, even when they ask the court to strike this down, there's still a two-year moratorium on that. So that's okay. got a phase-out period. Um, but it's got the smaller theaters spooked. Um, there's a lot of changes in the industry regardless. So it will take a little bit of time to see how the removal of these... Um, uh, rules will sort of shake out, um, but it's a it's a momentous thing. This stuff's been around, like I said, since 1949, and it's uh, soon to be uh, gone. Well, we're switching from the movies to smartphones, uh, which is collapsing in on itself at a, yeah, at, a, becoming, at, a, at, a at a high rate, becoming one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court agreed this week to hear a very very large uh, intellectual property case, um, decade long battle between Google and Oracle over smartphone software. Um, it's sort of hard to overstate the the implications of this one. There's like tens of billions of dollars at 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 play. Um, huge implications for for the software industry. It's just a really really big case. These these long these like years long IP cases can become kind of like like Dickensian from time to time uh -huh. with all the developments. What uh, like what are and we talked about this a long time ago, but I think we it's did. important. This that case has gone on so long that <laughs> we had a production meeting and I was like, but didn't we explain this on the show? <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm talking about. And yeah. and we looked it up and we explained it years ago. Yeah, yeah. it was almost so two years ago. It's yeah. time. It's time to update people about what's going on and why this has made it to them. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Oracle first sued Google back in uh, May of 2010. Long time ago. 
How long ago was it? I don't know. <laughs> um, I was still living at home when that happened. Okay, sorry. Uh, so it's pretty complex stuff, but the basic outline is that they accuse Google of taking um, these chunks of copyrighted software code and incorporating it into um, the Android operating system when they created it. And Android is now the biggest uh, smartphone platform in the country. So it's a it's a very big deal. Um, so they, w- this deals with the Java programming language, um, which was released in the 1990s by Sun Microsystems, which Oracle later acquired. Um, Java itself is free for everyone to use. It's a it's a language. It's not a an, yeah. a piece of IP. Um, but but Oracle sells these pre written chunks of code that allow for if you guys are writing a software program, it allows for you to more quickly do common things that you're going to do. So just imagine like you copy and pasting a piece of a story that you write all the time. Mm-hmm. It's that, and they li- and if you want to use that, you have to pay to use it. Um, those are called API. And when Google was creating Android, they they didn't copy the chunks of code, but they copied the names of the chunks of code and sort of the layout and the mm-hmm. way that they're presented. And the idea was that we want to be sort of within the realm of people who understand Java already. We want to make it so that you can use our system. So There's an adaptability to it. Exactly. So um, they rewrote the the chunks of code, but they n- named them the same thing and classified them in the same way. So um, Oracle sued, saying that you had you had copied our these these bits of of software code Mm -hmm. right like they basically said we have a system that works here it works so well you decided to just rip us off and copy it. exactly so it's taken a long time for that to go through the courts because there's there are just a lot of of issues to deal with here i mean the, the google's first argument was that we these bits of code are just basic building blocks for software and you're not allowed to control that with copyright law. It's it's like, you know, this is an idea for how you execute a certain type of program and that's not what copyright mm-hmm. law covers books, covers movies, yeah. it covers these yeah. interesting creative, creative expressions. expressions. We talk about this a lot on the show because it's something I most like to get into. It's like where's that limit? And I mean, we've talked about this with like how much of a dance can you uh, copyright versus like a step that anyone could use. And exactly. this is the same kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it's particularly interesting when it comes to uh, so- software copyrights because what Google says is that we need to be able to use these. We need to be able to make our things somewhat similar to yours to execute the same, you know, the same actions and everything else. And then mm-hmm. by allowing one company to lock that up, it really will cause a lot of problems for the software industry. Um, a-, a federal appeals court rejected that argument in 2014. Said no, these are copyrightable. It's we've always said that software code is copyrightable. These aren't any different. Mm-hmm sent the case back for another trial. Google then argued that they were entitled to just use these things that it's it's, yeah. it's fair use, which I think people have heard before that it's we that even if these are copyrighted, we were allowed to use the amount that we use. We didn't use that much. We did it for a specific sort of new purpose. And we made our own things. Exactly. We made a whole from it. We made, and and it is quantitatively a very small amount that they used. Mm-hmm. Oracle would argue that qualitatively it's very important, but yeah. um but again, last year, a federal appeals court rejected that argument. So Google lost both times at the lower courts. And so that sort of teed us up to go to the Supreme Court. Okay, well, let's talk about what the Supreme Court is going to weigh here. And I mean, like you said at the very beginning, it seems like the implications could be sweeping. Yeah, and it's it's always interesting to talk about. You know, it's it's an IP case. So I mean, the Supreme Court deals with, with life and death issues. They deal with civil rights. They deal with constitutional crises. So 
you know, you always have to temper it that way. But for yeah. an intellectual property case, it's sort of harder to to get bigger than this. Um, well, it's big for you. Right? What, what, what are we on? Like seven IP cases yeah. this term? It's or very something? yeah. There yeah. are se- well, there's seven seven um, uh, seven trademark copyright. Oh, IP okay. Cases. So there's nice. also um, uh, some patent stuff going on. Yeah, but, so this, is, but this is the star. It's going to be a big yeah. spring at the Supreme Court for IP. But yes. um, I mean, first off, the scale of this case is just enormous. That um, it's two of I mean, it's Google and Oracle. They're two of of, of Silicon Valley's biggest yeah. companies, two of the biggest tech companies in the world. Um, over the, the, like I said, I mean, one of the, the, the biggest smartphone platform in the country. Yeah. And um, at the lower court, the last time, Oracle claimed uh, that it was, uh, that there were $11 billion in, in damages. Mm-hmm. They will, there will be, if, if this case gets sent back, there will be, there will be another discussion of how much is owed but i mean it's 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 11 figures it's yeah. it's a it's a huge huge case um but i mean even beyond that the the implications for the way that the software industry that we got at a little bit earlier i mean google says that 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 their briefing said that it, this would wreak havoc on the software industry and uh, you know you always have to there are political camps there are parties yeah, sure. sort, of, sort of party lines it's in here. their interest to cast it that way right but, and, yes. but i mean a lot of uh, a lot of folks um in the software industry have filed uh amicus briefs that that make a similar argument that these that software engineers have always understood that you could um that you could reuse that you could sort of that you could do what google did here and mm-hmm. and and that it wasn't it didn't ex- it didn't count as copyright infringement. So what they say is that this will, you know, it will affect interoperability, which is how yeah. different devices and different software products connect with each other. It will cause all sorts of problems for just the basic idea of how software engineers understand that they're allowed to work um, mm-hmm. in this space. Yeah. Um, I mean, Oracle, just to be clear for this podcast, they say that all that stuff is 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 overblown and that this is sky is falling rhetoric and that uh-huh. Google just stole something they wanted to use yeah, and right. they're <laughs> sort of using their their clout to to make these arguments. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we will see whether, whether the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, that all sounds really big. So, um, what what's the court actually going to rule on here? Is this just all going to turn on um, yeah, the we... actual copyrightability, or is it going to turn on? Oh yeah, it's cop it's copyrightable, but there's fair use. You're, you're yeah. right to use it. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, and that's arguably the, what what's so interesting here is that they're doing. I mean, they're considering both. Google okay. appealed both rulings to the Supreme oh, Court, okay. um, the yeah. 2014 ruling and the more recent one. So. For for starters, I mean the court hasn't ruled on fair use since 1994. It's 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 arguably one of the biggest questions in copyright law, and the court has just been silent on it for yeah. for twenty for twenty five years. So it's a really really the the fair use angle here. I mean fair use is what allows for criticism. It allows for parity. It allows for all sorts of different things where people are reusing copyrighted works. It's it's a huge question, and this court's going to weigh in. On that, that's sort of a. It almost feels like a sideshow or something here compared to. It allows us to play meatloaf on the show. It, it does. does free of free of legal threat. It does, anyway, but yeah. but yeah, but but it's a, it's a it's a huge question. Yes. But I mean, uh, the, the the central question I think a lot of people would tell you is that the court has never issued a ruling on software copyrights. Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't that feel crazy to say in the year 2019? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, there's so many lawsuits about software and and copyright issues come up with this all the time. Yeah, so they tried in I think it was 1995 or 96 they issued a ruling but it was a it was a short-handed bench and they split 4-4 four, four, oh. which which means that, you know, the the lower court is is affirmed but it's it, it has no precedential It's not a definitive statement value. Or like that, yeah. Um mm-hmm. no, it's beyond that. I mean, it's it, it has no yeah, precedential it, it, 
it, right. yeah, it right. does not. Yeah. Um. Uh. So it 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 will be a uh it will be a huge ruling to see what they say about this. I mean, we got a landmark ruling on um on patents when it comes to uh, uh software back in 2014. Um, and this will be you know this will really have a huge impact. And I think it it I mean it goes without saying, but I mean the estimates for how large the software industry it's a, it's a it's a you know, a half a trillion dollar a year industry. It's 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 a huge, huge industry. So, um, how this shakes out has, uh, like I said, it's it's sort of hard to overstate what this will mean. The University of Pennsylvania has faced mass backlash from alumni this month after announcing it would rebrand Penn Law to Carey Law following a nine-figure donation from the W.P. Carey Foundation. The school's now backtracking, but why did this strike such a nerve? And are more law schools going to face similar rebranding controversies? Here to discuss the whole law school naming debacle is Matt Fair, Law360's senior Pennsylvania reporter. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, guys. So we we gave a little bit uh, in the intro there about what what's been happening with with Penn, but I thought you could maybe set the scene for us and explain, tell the listeners a little bit about the backstory of Penn Law and also, you know, w- w- what has been happening in the past few weeks that has gotten us to this point. Sure. So uh, back earlier this month, uh, the university announced that it had gotten this $125 million donation from the W.P. Carey Foundation. And that is a a philanthropic foundation behind the family that started uh, W.P. Carey, Inc., which is a big uh, real estate investment trust in New York. Um, And uh, so as part of this, they said they were going to change the name of the school to the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School, or Carey Law for short. And, uh, yeah, this really touched a nerve. Uh, Penn Law has been around since 1850. It's one of the 20 oldest law schools in the country, and it's consistently ranked as one of the the best law schools in the country. So... um, Alums are really protective of its of its image and, and its legacy. Uh, Matt, I'm really glad you're here. This is a really interesting story that we could talk about. I am, however, sad that we didn't have a podcast during the during my favorite law school naming debacle, which is when George Mason uh, changed its name to the Antonin Scalia School of Law, quickly pointed out to be Ass Law <laughs> uh, or Asshole <laughs> on the Antonin Scalia School of Law. Right. So that's sad. Um, but I, I bring that up just because that's a little different. That did not have to do with a donation. It was meant to honor his legacy, which right. makes it even funnier. Um, but have there been any other law schools that have gotten into a similar uh, situation that we're seeing at Penn right now? Um, there have been other law schools, uh, pretty highly ranked law schools, that have changed their name uh, to, to honor a donor. Um, back in 2015, uh, the uh, law school at Northwestern University took a uh, took in a $100 million donation from uh, J.B. Pritzker, who is actually now the, the governor of Illinois. Yes, he is. And, uh, so, so they they renamed uh, their law school after after him, um, but. As far as I was able to tell, you didn't really see the same kind of uh, kind of backlash that that you saw that you saw here with uh, with the name change of Penn. Yeah, I want it's it's funny because you know I mean 
uh, Penn's a great example. I mean, Wharton is one of the top business schools in sure. the country. It's funny. It just struck such a nerve here with with this. Um, and it, you know, one of the things now that we're talking about other schools, one of the things you saw this week was, you know, this wouldn't have happened at at Yale or Harvard or 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 whatnot. But I mean. Walk us through some of the backlash that that we've seen. I mean, I know you spoke to a good number of uh, UPenn alums who were really, really quite upset about this. Yeah, I, I talked to a couple of people, and um, I also spent some time digging through a, uh, an online petition that actually got set up um, that uh, asked the law school to keep the Penn Law name. They seem to be fine with. You know, it'd be, with the, the formal name being changed, but uh, the, the idea of Penn being stripped out of there just seemed to really uh, suggest to a lot of people that, that the school was kind of stripping its association with the, with the Penn name, with like, the overall University of Pennsylvania brand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, outside of like the, the, the real estate and philanthropic world, I don't know how much the carry name means to, to people. Uh, so, you know, it seems like people weren't sure if people would know kind of what the school was was actually named after and what it stood for. Is it named after like Mariah Carey, uh, <laughs> right. Drew Carey? Well, you and, well, and yeah. you, you you had pointed out in your story that there are that this is that this would not be the only Carey Law School, right? Yeah. So um, the University of Maryland uh, took in a thirty million dollar donation from the Carey Foundation in two thousand eleven. Um, and so their shorthand name is now Maryland's Carey Law. So folks that I talked to were kind of concerned that Carey Law School was going to be kind of seen as like a franchise uh, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Beyond the beyond the matter of confusion, which Carey did you go to? It's just like to the extent yeah. that you could, to the extent that you know the difference, it, it suggests a commodification of like legal, you know, legal academia. Right, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's just so interesting. I mean, again, not to belabor the point, but that that it does feel like. It feels like something singular to the legal world, maybe that there is this this <laughs> this concern. We've seen other schools take donations like this and add things to their names. It's it's been fascinating to watch just how how upset people are. I mean, you had some really great quotes in your in your story. Yeah, and there were some big names that were on the petition uh, that got sent around. You had a uh, a, a top deputy to uh, the U.S. attorney in, in Philadelphia. You even had the name of uh, the chief bankruptcy for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania on there, not to mention the scores of, of, uh, of attorneys who are now at big law firms uh, all around the world. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ink spilled these days about the, the direction of campus activism and millennials and things like that, but this is, there are people from all around who are pretty upset about this. Um, now, we did get some clarity this week. The school uh, hedged a little bit. Tell us about the, I guess, I guess you'd call it a compromise that they landed on. Yeah, they, they kind of split the baby a little bit. Um, so earlier this week, they announced that it would keep Penn Law as the shorthand name until the start of the 2022-2023 uh, academic year, and that after that, it will go by the shorthand name Penn Carry Law. But some people seem like they're they're still not happy about this, and, and some have suggested that it's just a way to placate current students at the school who you know, thought they were going to Penn Law yeah. and not uh, not Carey Law or some other iteration of the name. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, like, like like you say, we're we're going back and forth here. Now we have both names in the thing. Um, I did think it was pretty fun. I, there, you you had a quote that was like, at the end of the day, we are talking about 
the brand of an extremely prestigious law school. And it's like, you know, if you're applying for a job, you know, there's no, no one's putting a gun to your head to write carry law on your CV or whatever you're well, doing. Well, and you know, a hiring someone who's hiring at the kind of firms that hire kids out of UPenn Law. I mean, yeah. the, you would think that they were taking the level of care to not be confused by by a, a naming convention change. That's a that's a fine point, and I think I mean the the, the reason the story is interesting is just like how passionate these people are about well, their worse. school. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, that's a, that's and and that's what Matt was getting to. Like, you right. know, that, that's what we're talking about here. So where does this leave us, Matt? You know, we have this we have this sort of half measure that they've done. The name's going to be changed to something else many years later. Uh, is there anything that we can that other law schools maybe can take away from how we've seen this uh, unfold? I mean, the lesson here, I think, is that alumni take the legacy of their law schools pretty damn seriously. Yes. Um, you know, especially when you're shelled out. You know, in the case of Penn, you're shelling out $63,000 a year in, in tuition. Um, and part of the criticism here was that alums felt like they were cut out of the process a little bit. This just kind of came down out of nowhere. The alums didn't have any chance to weigh in on, on what the name might be before the decision was announced. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe maybe schools can give alumni and their in their communities uh, a little more of an active role in the process of kind of how their the institution should be branded. I mean, that all being said, it's hard to imagine law schools are going to turn up their noses at multi-million dollar donations that's, because they're afraid of pissing off a couple of loans. That's right. important to note. It always, uh, it often comes down to money. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, all right, well, Matt. I think, it, I think it always comes down to money. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this was a very interesting chat. We, uh, we appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, happy to do it, guys. Thanks, Matt. show is something offbeat and I have one today that maybe isn't our funniest story but it's a bit of an update so I wanted to get into it um we are still a news program even when we're making making the funnies yeah yeah. so when we're goofing remember back when we talked about how the California bar um exam essay topics were sent around to law school deans ahead Mm. of that test yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it was a story I really like talking about. So that I rules, wanted to get frankly. to some conclusion here. So obviously when that happened, it caused a big uproar. Um, that's not supposed to happen. And the leak um, went to 16 deans. And mm-hmm. in light of that, the state bar decided to just give all 9,000 test takers a heads up about the list of essay topics that before was, they took that exam. Yeah. That was my favorite part of the thing. I mean, it's a tough situation, I suppose, but I do like the idea of someone sitting around and be like, okay, what are the options here? Yeah. Well, I guess we gotta give it to everybody. <laughs> and then it's, people it's, and then people were mad who had taken the test prior in the like in the prior like iteration of it is like just so yeah. much fallout, like uh, people being upset that this somehow makes the test easier for those people than the people taking it, not being sure it was real, and also yeah. then being upset that somehow they're going to be looked at as um, maybe passing in a tainted yeah. year. Just yeah, lots no. of stuff here. So when we reported on that back in August, we explained that the California Supreme Court, and they have a role in being a watchdog over bar yeah. admissions, they'd launched a big investigation remember, into yeah. What exactly happened here? Like, how did we get here? So now it's November, and we've got the results of that. Well, what do we know? 
So they I'm guessing somebody made a mistake, but that much was clear. <laughs> I, I think somebody goofed. Yeah, you know yeah right. You Just guys like are very right. I okay. mean, there was some concern of like, well, was this done on purpose? Well, was there sure, some yeah. plot to like get this out to certain deans and try, try to advantage certain schools? Premeditated goofing. Did you guys well, ever see that movie, The Perfect Score, where they steal the SATs? <laughs> there you go. There, there's Early some Scarlett Johansson. Questions there, yeah. about also, whether or not NBA this star, was bad. Also NBA star Darius Miles. Anyway, sorry. Oh, nice. Go ahead. Uh, um, yeah, so Good this movie. really was just a goof. The the quote in the report is that it was human error. Well, so human yeah, error. I mean, you kind of hate to see it, but there was. <laughs> I was some... like, is she going to say that you hate <laughs> I was, to see it? I yes, help it. very good. Um, you do, but there was. Some interesting things we learned here about how we got here. So okay. a retired appellate judge, um, Arthur Scotland, and his law firm looked into everything here. So uh, a really thorough investigation. The judge found the California State Bar, um, a worker just goofed up because they were trying to do things ahead of time. Mm-hmm. This is what they said. The inadvertent disclosure was the primary result of a manager seeking to stay ahead of a challenging schedule of work in advance of being assigned to proctor an exam. I mean, we've all done. I mean, we've all been in those shoes. You know, you try and plan some projects ahead of time. You you overlook something. Sometimes mess stuff up. It blows up in your face. As you can imagine, there's a lot of security typically around these questions to the point of they um, they start writing them about a year in advance, and the drafts of them are locked in a room at the bar offices. People that see them have to sign non disclosure agreements. Just lots of things to keep them secret. But the staffers, many of them, have access. And what happened? um, By the way, the staffers not named that made this mistake for obvious reasons. They'd probably get a lot of vitriol if people knew they were the one that goofed. (laughs) Um, so there is this process after the bar exam is administered where they calibrate some of the grading and deans are invited to, um, oversee some of that calibration. So they were supposed to send this invitation to invite the deans to that. And they were supposed to send it basically the day after the bar was taken by all these people. So this staffer was preparing the email to send out ahead of time and they goofed up and sent it early. So that's how we got there. I mean, the lesson is procrastinate. I think. Yeah, there you go. I was, I was going to say, what, 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 what can we learn? That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, procrastinate's that is, one of them. That's yeah. also. I'm a. I mean, our listeners may or may not know this. They probably do after listening to me talk for years. I'm a real Type A person, so I'm the kind no. of person. You. <laughs> thanks, guys. I'm the kind of person that would draft an email early, but man, it's a real warning. Like. That's easy to mess up. I mean, clearly, yes. Um, um, but so... there's, yeah, there's uh, one other bit of additional fallout that I thought was worth bringing up from this report. So, the report outlined what happened once this goof happened, and the deans have gotten the. I questions. love that you've been using. I feel like I seeded the word. You goof really in did. your brain. Yeah, yeah, you did. Sorry. <laughs> I was dropping some go- some joking goofs earlier, and now I just but we're that's just, we've, what we've, it, we've I mean, switched to sincere as a goof. goof. Right, <laughs> we're goofing. Uh, I'll try to stop saying it, but who knows? I mean, I might get a few more. You might goof. So so, um, the state bar basically went into like meltdown after this happened and they realized it. Yeah. So the report has all this stuff about how leaders at the bar decided on purpose not to consult the Supreme Court's advice on what to do. You see? So we're going to get caught up in this bureaucratic thing. Yeah. Okay. So. When they did inform the court about the problem, there's some allegations that bar officials didn't respond to the lead attorney at the state bar, I mean, at the um, Supreme Court, who's the liaison between the two groups. See, classic so, liaison mishap. Mm. I mean, it just does seem like the bar officials did not know what to do. Yeah. They were really taken by surprise, as you can imagine. Um, so bar officials decided to tell all those test takers, which we mentioned before, without any input from the state Supreme Court. 
And bar officials say it's because, you know, it required a really quick solution. The, the bar was days, the test was days yeah. away. And the Supreme Court has delegated a lot of authority to the bar over the test itself and like anything that happens related to the test. So mm-hmm. problems, whatever. Um, meanwhile, the state bar did their own investigation. And there's a little bit of snarkiness here. You can tell that the two groups are, are very... Um, uh, a little bit of infighting about who's to blame and what should happen. But when the state bar did their investigation, they have some action steps they wanted. And one of them in their report proposed getting the Supreme Court to clarify the nature of its relationship with the bar oh, and God. when it should be involved in bar decisions. See, this is, I mean, it's, it's a mistake that this happens. It's like, well, we need a wholesale. I mean, somebody somebody goofed. Is that, that yep. much is very clear. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, we need a wholesale rewrite of how we interact and what yeah. our roles are. What a that's a that's awesome. It just seems like <laughs> like is that a classic like bureaucratic yeah. fighting thing where a bad thing happened and then two different groups didn't know how to interact yeah. properly and make like a clear plan of you know, we have said goof about a hundred times, but mm-hmm. this was just a human error mistake, something that while you, you hope it doesn't happen, it could happen in the future. And I think everyone at the end of the day after these reports is just trying to put a lot of like steps in place about what to do if anything weird happens in the yeah. future. That and more stories like it on soon-to-be-launched Goof Law 360. <laughs> Stay tuned. I would subscribe to that for yeah. sure. Um, thanks for being with me today, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Matt Fair, and contributing reporters, Lauren Berg and Matthew Perlman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. If you love listening to our show, can you do us a favor? Take a minute to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and write up why you like us. We'd love to hear from you, and it gives us a boost so others can find our show. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.